Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Today's guest is Catherine Locke, author of The Girl with the Red Balloon and the upcoming The Spy with the Red Balloon. Catherine joined me today to talk about landing her agent and how her process of drafting ignores the need to be perfect, putting that responsibility on the editing process. Walk through an enchanted autumn wood where leaves shine like red candy apples by day and blood is spilled by flesh-eating monsters at night. The rules are simple. Do not travel from the path. Do not linger after dark. Do not ignore the calling. The Wood by Chelsea Babolski. Tell us about your agent hunt and how you landed your agent. I had an interesting journey to getting my agent. I am represented by Louise Fury at the Bent Agency. And I first queried Louise with a YA fantasy in December of 2013. And I did it the way that they tell you don't do it. So I wrote a NaNoWriMo book and I was like, this is different than everyone else's NaNoWriMo book. My book is special and clearly can be queried right away. (laughs) That was not true. (laughs) It was a very bad book. So I queried her with it and I hit some weird window of time around the holidays where she actually read it pretty quickly and rejected it. Um, (laughs) Two or three weeks later, I had another manuscript, which was an adult romance. And I did PitMad or one of those online Mm -hmm. Twitter pitch contests and she requested it from me. I sent an adult romance book to her in January and in late April... I ended up with an offer from her and an offer from a publisher basically at the same time. Oh, wow. I super recommend not sending your book to publishers and agents at the same time because it created like this massive headache that slowed down a lot of the process and caused Mm -hmm. some like paperwork issues, et cetera. But she offered on the book. And at the time I was like, so I wrote romance book and I might want to write them in the future. But most of what I write is YA. So she had me tell her about the YA that I was writing. And then she was like, oh, yes, you queried me with that weird book. And I was like, yes, I did. (laughs) She had totally remembered. And I had been hoping that she hadn't. And she actually really liked the premise. And she keeps asking me. It's been five years since I wrote that book. And she keeps asking me, when are you going to rewrite that for me? You should rewrite that. I really think that that could be your next book. That's cool. Uh, So we started working together in late April of 2014, and we are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books in now. That's so fantastic. Yeah. I love your tip about not querying agents and publishers at the same time. I think that is very prudent because, as you were saying, it can really jam up the works, all the machinations involved with publishing. So can you talk a little bit more about, like, specifically what kind of problems that caused? Yeah. I mean, it slowed down the contract a lot, which probably pushed back the timeline for when the book was published. I had submitted it to Karina Press, which is an ebook digital first publisher through Harlequin. They definitely deal with some agents. I mean, Louise had another book with them, another client with them, so she knew them. But 
they were also, I think, planning on rolling my books out a little faster than they could because signing with an agent, that there were contract negotiations that changed, which were good for me because I didn't know a lot about contracts then. And I probably would have signed away rights and things that I didn't actually want to sign away. But from a publishing standpoint, it probably pushed back my book about four or five months. The turnaround at Karina is a little faster because they don't have to print. And I accepted their offer in mid-May or late May. And the book came out in April of 2015. It's a quick turnaround there, but I think they were probably aiming to have me closer to January originally. So that slowed down um, those types of things. And I think that if I hadn't submitted it to a publisher, Louise would have shopped it around to other places. And maybe I would have had multiple competing offers. But because I had already submitted it to a publisher and had an offer on the table, we couldn't do that unless I pulled it completely from them. And that felt like too much of a gamble. So it meant I had no other options for that book. I'm really happy with where that book ended up. I think Karina was a really good place for me to learn the editorial process with a book, to grow. I absolutely loved working with my editor there, Carrie Buckley. She's really fantastic. And I think that ultimately that was a good place for that book, but it's also a set of unknowns. We don't know who else would have put money on the table or offered me something different. And I would have had a different experience somewhere else. And that's just a set of unknowns. Absolutely. That's the what ifs. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good tip because a lot of people aren't necessarily sure what they want when they're first going out into the world of exploring what's even possible as far as being an inspiring writer. And so they might be dipping their toes into a couple of different pools. And I do think that that can cause issues further down the line. So yeah, good tip. Definitely. I knew someone else who that also happened to uh, about the same time. And he and I are both like telling every emerging author we know, if you're querying, don't do what we did. It looks mm-hmm. like it worked out for us, but it did cause headaches and it caused a little bit of extra stress. And it meant that we didn't get as many options for our books as yeah. we potentially could have. So yeah. although it looks like it worked out, going the standard route of just querying agents first, if that is how you want to do it, that's a better move. Well, it also creates something of, I guess a headache might be the best way to put it for an agent that wants to work with you. And right off the bat, you have kind of a complicated situation that you're handing them. Exactly. And that can feel awkward. I know, obviously, I've been with my agent for a long time now. And so we've managed all kinds of situations. But starting off with something like that, where things are a little sticky and a little muddy, I think that that could, especially as an aspiring author who maybe isn't as confident, it could kind of muddy the waters of your relationship, not necessarily that your agent resents the extra work, but that you yourself feel guilt for bringing it to them, perhaps. Totally. And especially because Karina does not pay advances. So Mm. it is just royalties, which is pretty typical of digital first publishers. That meant she was doing a lot of work for Mm -hmm. literally pennies. (laughs) Um, And I felt a lot of pressure that the next thing I brought to her would be bigger. I think a lot of that was just pressure on myself. I think she would have worked with me with whatever I brought to her, but I felt a lot of pressure to bring something big and sellable to her next time. I sent my next book to her about eight months after we started working together, and that was The Girl with the Red Balloon. 
So a Twitter user recently asked me about getting past the urge to make your work perfect from the start and feeling frustration at the quality of her first draft, which I totally understand. So can you talk a little bit about how you deal with that need for perfection at the outset versus the necessity of just getting a draft down? I hate first drafts. And I feel like that's the wrong thing to say because it's creation and like that's what we do as writers. But I really, really don't like first drafts. I usually outline, but I outline at the beginning and almost never refer to it. So I don't actually know how helpful that is. To me, I can't fix what I haven't written. The revision process is a joyful process for me. Even when I do it 60 times and I'm crying and I'm complaining on Twitter, it's always more joyful than first drafts. So my goal, now that I know that about myself, is to get through the first draft, no matter what it looks like, so that I can revise it. I will skip Mm -hmm. whole scenes. My first drafts run really short. The first draft of The Spy with the Red Balloon, I think was like 55,000 words and the book ended at 103,000 words. Holy crap. Yeah. And I just finished (laughs) it and I was like, okay, it's done. I can go revise now, which is really just more writing and rewriting for me. Mm -hmm. But mentally, I have to get to the end of what my story is. So Mm. I do that two different ways. One, I usually write my first chapter and my last chapter first so that I have bookends. And my last chapter serves as the light at the end of the tunnel. I know the tone and where I'm going. I know intuitively the beats that I need to do to get there. It helps. And then also at the end, I'm like, surprise, I have 2,000 extra words that I've already written. And it feels like a bonus. Um, So that's fun too. So yeah, I almost always write my last chapters first. They almost never change in revisions too. It's probably the only part that doesn't change in revisions. And I also let myself write out of order as necessary. I would Mm. prefer to write linearly. I try to, but if a book is coming to me in scenes that are not the beginning of the book, then I write the scenes that I have in my head. I used to use Microsoft Word to organize all of that and that got really messy. So I now use Scrivener because then I can rearrange and compile and export. I don't love Scrivener. It's a little overwhelming for me, but it's really helpful for those times when I no later scenes and I just need to piece it together. I'm happy to piece it together and fix almost everything in revisions. I write dialogue heavy in my first drafts because I like dialogue and it moves pretty quickly. I'll write whole chapters that are just dialogue and fill in everything in revisions. Whatever helps me get through that first draft so I can get to the part where, okay, I know the bones of the story. I just have to literally flesh it out now. Anything that gets you through the first draft is worth doing and trying. That is a really fascinating process. I have never heard that one. I know, because it's not really a process. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's your process. It's the Catherine Locke process. It's a lot of, well, that didn't work. Try it again, but different. <laughs> um, so every book has been a little different. I find that writing an outline or like a fake query for a book really helps me get the sense of tone and character beforehand, even if I don't refer back to it. And I listen to a lot of music, one song on loop for Mm -hmm. a character or a book. Um, And then I can never listen to it ever again. (laughs) Whatever gets me through the first draft. And I'll add 
30 to 50,000 words in my second draft. That's really interesting. I know a lot of people that do jump around as they're writing. I write linearly myself, so I can use Word because I don't have to do a lot of rearranging. But many people I know that hop around uh, within their timeline use Scrivener specifically for that reason. I think getting past that need for perfection in the first draft is very difficult when you are still learning how to write. Also, I think the important thing to realize is that our published finished books that you buy on the shelf are not perfect. I can easily tell you that when I am doing a reading, I don't mind doing readings, but when I do them, if anyone were following along, I'm editing oh, it. Exact, I yeah. I, I found a mistake in The Spy with the Red Balloon when I was flipping through looking for like quotes to put as teasers. I have thought about it every day since oh, then. Yeah. <laughs> Things slip through. Perfectionism is about a fear of failure. There is no such thing as failure when you come to a book. If you sit down and you finish a first draft, you've already surpassed so many people who say, oh, I really want to do that. You're already ahead of the game. I heard something recently where someone said that writes like one chapter a day and she only lets herself reread the previous day's chapter, not anything before that. I think Mm -hmm. that's a really helpful tool. I don't reread anything as I'm going. If I forgot someone's name, I make it up and just flag it for myself. I don't reread for place names or spellings or rules or dates. I fix that all later. So I think a lot of perfectionism is about letting go of feeling like your book isn't good enough and knowing that unless you're on deadline, you have an infinite amount of time to revise that book. Mm-hmm. We call them shitty first drafts. I mean, that's what they are. Yeah. I was going through The Girl with the Red Balloon in my first round of developmental edits with my editor. And there was some line where like Kai's laughter was like glittering diamonds falling through the sky. And I was like, (laughs) what is wrong with me? Who wrote that line? I've never deleted a line so quickly. And I tend to be like a slightly purple writer sometimes, but that was Mm -hmm. so overboard. It was astonishing. And then I was like, so many editors read that. That's That went on <laughs> submission. But yeah, I mean, we all write really bad first drafts and also occasionally, apparently, really bad like fifth drafts. <laughs> yeah, of course we do. That's part of the learning process. Three secrets, one decision, and a friendship that will change everything. Told through the journal entries of the two main characters, this emotional story chronicles Melly's life-altering choice after an unspeakable act and her friend's determination to help her. Find your own truth in this book about reproductive rights that readers are calling powerful, gut-wrenching, important, and beautifully written. What They Don't Know by Nicole Magi is on sale now. So you mentioned The Girl with the Red Balloon, and that is a mix of historical fiction and magical realism. The latter is something that can be difficult to define and really hard to explain to someone who isn't familiar with that term. So how do you explain magical realism and what is the best way for an aspiring author to know if they should use it to describe their own work? A lot of people struggle to put a genre on The Girl with the Red Balloon. Some people call it magical realism. I would not. I mean, I think I have occasionally in the past, but I don't think that I should. That's because I've just learned a lot more about magical realism from Latinx authors who have been really generous with their time and their 
education. Magical realism is a genre that really came out as a reaction to colonialism in Latin American countries. So Isabella Allende and Gabriel Garcia Marquez are two big name magical realism authors. The Girl with the Red Balloon was really hard to define because the magic was pretty light in that book because none of my protagonists could do magic. But I think now that The Spy with the Red Balloon is written and out there, it is definitely historical fantasy. Historical low fantasy, historical urban fantasy, however you want to define it. It's definitely a magical system versus something magical in the setting, which is usually what magical realism is. I would probably define it as historical fantasy or historical urban fantasy. I think if authors are trying to figure out what their book is, one, I did not worry about this when I wrote The Girl with the Red Balloon. I only worried about it after I wrote The Girl with the Red Balloon. Mm -hmm. And I think that is important. It is something that booksellers, librarians, and some editors had struggled with of where they shelve it, but it usually ends up on fantasy shelves. And if you are a Latinx author and magical realism feels like it fits, go for it. If you are not Latinx, I probably would recommend that you don't use it to describe your books. Laura Ruby wrote Bone Gap. Bone Gap was described as being magical realism and Laura suggested calling it fableism instead. So if that Mm -hmm. fits your book, I think that's a really good description as well for those books that aren't by Latinx authors, but have something magical in the environment and setting the way that magical realism books from Latinx authors do. And with fantasy, it can be difficult, as you were just saying, there's urban fantasy, there's low fantasy, there's high fantasy, there's science fantasy. And if you're going to write in the fantasy genre, or if you're going to sprinkle elements into your work, I wouldn't say you have to know it right away. I like what you're saying instead, that you wrote your book. You knew what your book was in your head. You weren't worried about labels. You were going to write your book and you're going to let the publisher decide what it's called. And I think that is exactly the right way to go. It's something you might want to consider or at least familiarize yourself with the different genre labels so that you can determine when it is suggested to you whether or not that is the right one that fits your book the best or how you want to represent your book. But I agree, don't bash your head against the wall when because that's a marketing element. And it's like, dude, just write your book. And it was really stressful for me during submission. And then after we sold, people would say like, well, what genre is it? Where do I put it on a shelf? What do I call it? Mm-hmm. What's the metadata for all of the websites? Oh, hey. um, which we don't have to get into. But the labels that help Amazon decide what categories mm-hmm. it's in and like books it matches it with, yeah. those were really stressful for me. I messed up by writing a book that's hard to categorize. And that was a really hard feeling to shake when I was approaching writing book two. When I got out and I actually met readers, I found out that the only people that are really worried about labels are adults. Um, Adult readers, adult gatekeepers across the field. The people who don't care at all about a label are teens. So my intended audience, and although many of my readers are adults, my intended audience are teens. And they absolutely did not care what genre the book was, as -hmm. long as they enjoyed the book. I kept that at the forefront of my mind when people were like, what is The Spy with the Red Balloon? And I was like, 
an historical urban fantasy spy thriller? Is that too many? It doesn't really matter. It's going to find its readers and those readers will love it no matter what the labels on Amazon say. If you write books that kind of straddle genres, try not to stress out too much about it. I think it's important to know what other books are in the market, but forcing your book into a box is not the right move. No. And it's also not your job. It is not my job. I say that a lot in publishing. This is not my job. (laughs) Not my job. No, that is absolutely right. It's interesting. You did mention metadata. No, we won't belabor it. But I was recently looking at my own metadata for my books on Amazon. And those are the categories. Like you were saying, underneath, you'll see young adult, fiction, fantasy, high fantasy. And it just breaks it down further, further, further. So for my book coming out next March... It's about the opioid crisis, so it's under young adult fiction, teens, addiction issues. And then number two, it has something else, and my main character is an athlete. She's a softball player. The metadata categories are separated. When they're keying them in, they actually have number values. So mine was listed under YA fiction, girls, sports, basketball. I sent my editor an email, and I'm like, hey... I know this is just something dumb. I'm just letting you know that right now my softball book is metadata with basketball. He's like, well, that metadata on Amazon is one digit apart. And so when they were keying it in, just somebody pushed, literally pushed the wrong button. It is not your job, but I would suggest if your book is already published and it's up, check, take a look and see if you do believe it does in fact fit. Like I said, if it's actually wrong, (laughs) like mine had the wrong sport, it can get fixed fairly easily. But again, no one is looking at that. No buyer is like, I'm going to go check the metadata on this. No, they look at the cover, they read the description, and then they either buy it or they don't. Right. The weird background stuff of publishing that you learned once you've been in is strange. The farther you get into publishing, the stranger it gets, which I feel like is the opposite of every other industry. Like The more you get to know... (laughs) nonprofit world, the more that you understand what's happening. And the more I get into publishing, the less I understand, which is a really weird feeling. I learn something new every day. And every day, it's something that blows my mind. I'm like, you're kidding. There's no way, right? No, that's true. It's amazing. And I love it because it is so challenging. And it is a beautiful chaos. And I do love that. But There are days when I'm like, you know, banking seems like really (laughs) well-structured. It's very straightforward. It's funny, too, when you're talking to people outside of the industry and you'll say something like, for example, people will ask me, hey, how's the book selling? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And they're like, well, what do you mean? It's like, yeah, I don't. I I have no idea. Like My parents have not wrapped their head around that. Yeah. They were like, so (laughs) you'll find out how the book sold between September and December in May. And I was like, yes. And they were like, but what happened in January when you had that sale? When do you find out about that? I was like, October. And my dad was like, how do you make business decisions? And I was like, that is such a great question. I don't have an answer. (laughs) We don't know. Yeah, we're we're really unsure about that. Well, it's a great point because all that data, all that data gathering that everyone is dependent on now, we have no fucking clue. 
that big appearance that I did that I sunk a thousand dollars of my own money into to get me there and put me in front of people, do the appearance and fly back home. I have no idea if that sold books or not. You're just flying the flag, seeing what happens. Yep. You can track like a little bit. I can see sometimes a spike. If I've done like a heavy week of promo on Twitter, I can see a spike in my Amazon sales ranking and my book scan numbers through Mm Author Central. But I try not to take that as verbatim because BookScan catches maybe 40% of my sales. Maybe. It's just a weird industry. It's And I deal with data like all the time in my day job. So my day job is like send something into the world and literally watch the database to find out if anyone used it. So the idea mm-hmm. that I would have to wait six months to a year for that data is a little crazy making that for eight hours a day, I get the data I want usually within 24 hours. And in my other eight hours of working, I don't. It's six months, you'll know. Yeah. And even then you'll have a snapshot. They don't share with you like Mm -hmm. on this day, you sold this many books. I guess some publishers will share that if you harass them. Mine doesn't. So I just see an overall quantity. I have... Two books with Penguin Random House and the rest are with Harper. Penguin Random House has their own portal. that You can log in and you can check your sales. And that's pretty cool, I will say. But it also is dangerous because you can log in and check your sales. And you're just like, dear God in heaven. Yeah. In some ways, ignorance is truly bliss. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Harlequin has that so I could check my romance book sales and for the first like six months I did that I don't do that now because mm-hmm. I don't need that level of depression in my life ultimately what you learn from the data that you do gather is in general there's very little you can do to move that meter I mean appearances are wonderful getting out there beating the street talking to people face to face all of that is I mean it helps having that ripple effect always helps Book yeah. people talk to other people about books. So if you put yep. your book into somebody's hands that has never heard of you, they're probably going to talk to two or three other people about your book. There is a ripple effect, but that is two or three people. When you're looking at your aggregated sales data for six months, you're not going to be able to pick out those two or three people. So you don't know. You don't know what that particular event did for you. You're saying, yes. and you're right, you can see trends on your book scan numbers on Amazon. And and I do see them, but it has to be a fairly large event in order for me to see a spike or a larger school visit where I handed out bookmarks and the kids took the bookmarks home and said, mom, this author was here or whatever, you know. Overall, no, you're not getting that data that, that every other business in the world. Sometimes I want it. And then sometimes I'm like, no, I would not be a better creative person if I had that data. Because in my day job, I make decisions that are driven by data. I actually don't mm-hmm. want to make decisions that are driven by snapshot data in publishing. I think that looking at overall marketing trends is not a bad idea. Chasing a trend is a terrible idea. But do I want to change what I'm writing because last week I sold 16 more books of one book over another book? Probably not. No. The other side is I hate not having the data but I don't know that I need the data to do my job. To make my decisions. Yeah, absolutely. To make at least my creative decisions. I mean, like I would love to know if what I do in terms of marketing worked or didn't work, Mm -hmm. but in terms of what I choose to write, 
it wouldn't change any. So we've been mentioning the girl with the red balloon and upcoming the spy with the red balloon. And both of these required quite a bit of research due to their historical nature. So if you could talk a little bit about your research project and also if you could, how you determine when or where to blur the line of fact with fiction for the purposes of plot. That's a great question because I also spend a lot of time thinking about that, specifically where Mm -hmm. I deviate from the historical record. I'm going to start there and then I'll talk about my research, which is I made a promise early to myself when I was writing historical fantasy and I was adding magic to major historical events that I was not going to change the outcome of history. In my books, the Nazis do not win. In my books, Mm -hmm. the Berlin Wall still comes down. In The Girl with the Red Balloon, I didn't erase the other ways that people escaped from East Berlin just because I also added magical balloons as an escape method. And to me, that was really important because these are real people's lives. Real people lived through this. They survived or they did not survive. And for me to use magic or just the lie of fiction to change that felt disrespectful. And that's a personal opinion. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to speak to other people's books. But to me, that's how I felt. In The Girl with the Red Balloon, one of the protagonists escapes from a death camp by way of a magical red balloon. He escapes from Chelmno, which was a death camp where prisoners were loaded into trucks, the door was shut, and the truck was pumped full of carbon monoxide. Escapes from this camp are very low because there just was no opportunity to escape or to survive. It was a death camp. It was an execution camp. But there was one account when I was doing research of an 18-year-old boy who got on the train to go there And there's no record of him dying there. But we don't know where he ended up. He's never come forward and said, I survived Chelmno. So whether or not he survived long term, I don't know. I used that story as a basis for this character's escape. If I had not found anyone who has escaped from Chelmno, I would have chosen a different camp. So those are the types of decisions Mm. that I make when I dig into history. In The Spy with the Red Balloon, Wolf is a spy for the Manhattan Project. Essentially, he is dropped into Western Europe behind enemy lines to seek out German nuclear sites and destroy them and steal information, which was a real project. It was called Operation Alsos. It was a real arm of the Manhattan Project that we don't talk about a whole lot, but it happened in 1944, not 1943. So the thing that I switched Mm -hmm. there is that I moved it up about a year into 1943, because I wanted things to happen with Ilsa at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, that had to happen in 1943. So that's where I will deviate from the norm, is when moving it up a year doesn't radically change the course of history or Mm -hmm. disrespect the people who fought. In terms of historical research, I do a lot of it. I have never been to Germany, and now I have written two books set in Germany. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I have relied a lot on maps movies, other books. I did a lot of Google street walking in Berlin so that I could see what buildings looked like. That is an incredible resource. I try to read first-person accounts of people who were there. So either reading or listening to interviews with the Holocaust survivors, I listen to a lot of oral interviews about their experience at the Ludge Ghetto. I try to absorb as much as I can. It may not always make it into the book, Like I know a lot about the type of shopping bags that East Berliners used 
and a lot about mm-hmm. feminine hygiene products in East Berlin. Neither of those made it into the book, but they informed how I approached the world as a whole. It's always subconsciously there. So it's never wasted if I don't put it in the book. I do research as I go though, so that research doesn't slow me down because I'll spend years and years and years researching and I need to be writing at the same time. So I do usually read one or two books at the beginning before I start that are kind of an overview of the time period and major actors and major dates. And then I dive in and work as I go. So, okay, she's standing in line for bread. Then I go research what signs were on storefronts at that time in East Berlin. Okay, she has to go to a park. Mm -hmm. Where is the park? I don't do that ahead of time. I do it as I need it. That's kind of how I balance it out because otherwise I wouldn't write books. I would just read historical nonfiction. No, it's very true. Writers are very, very good at procrastination and telling yourself you don't know enough yet to start your book feels like you're being honest and humble, but no, you're just procrastinating. Yes. So when I wrote A Madness So Discreet, I researched for 18 months. I read and read and read and read and read and read and I was never ready to start that book. And finally, I was like, I just have to start the damn thing. Like, I'm never going to have everything I need. And I love your point about doing the research as you need it. Because at one point in what I was working on, somebody walks into a room, it's in the asylum, it's at night, but they're working like lights are on. Oh, my God, I read probably eight to 10,000 pages about medical history in the 1890s. I did not know what kind of lighting was in this room. I did not know if it was gas, if it was fire, if it was electric. And so I had to go do research right then. And that's fine because if I tried to know what everyone was wearing, what their hair looked like, what they used to brush their teeth, all of that stuff, I would never start the book. Exactly. What you do choose to put in the book says a lot about your character Ellie in The Girl with the Red Balloon, she's from our time. I didn't need her to notice the type of toothpaste. I needed her to notice everything looked old. So I just needed to notice things like hairstyle, cars, clothing, Mm -hmm. no one's on their cell phone. Those are like the big details I needed to hit. She's not going to notice that they're using a different type of concrete. She doesn't know any Mm -hmm. of that. She doesn't need to know any of that. I needed to show her experience, which was... I just time traveled. The only way I know I time traveled is every car is old and everyone looks like my parents' high school yearbook photos. That was the important information I needed to impart. Uh, So I always try to think of that too, is what are the important things that my character would notice? And what Kai notices is different from what Ellie notices, which is different than what Benno notices. Mm -hmm. And all of that is important. You can't possibly plan for every situation that you suddenly need to do some research about. So again, with A Madness So Discreet, well, also I don't plan my books. So I guess probably if you were a serious planner, you could do every moment of research that you needed to do. But I had to find out what printers, what newspapers Mm -hmm. did with old editions, especially the dailies. I needed to know what people did with the dailies when they were finished with them. Obviously, they didn't get recycled. It's 1890. Right. I was like, what the hell do they do with them? Because I needed someone to find a piece of information. They weren't going to be going to the library and looking at microfiche, right? And I was like, shit, what do people freaking do with these newspapers? And I had to do research for like an hour to figure it out. And most of the time, like I ended up getting an answer that was pretty fun. 
they actually went to uh, food vendors. I was so, like, just about to ask, like, fish. or yeah, wrapping up meat in them. Yep. Yeah. Which you don't want to think about too much because that is like ink, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were so many other health issues though, like the ink's probably the oh, least yeah. of your issues. And I know a lot of those health Getting issues a bit because of I read a madness so discreet and oh. there was some vivid imagery yeah, in that book that has really stuck with me. <laughs> People frequently forget about writing smell when they're writing. I feel like mm-hmm. it's a scent that we don't remember. That was one of the senses in a madness so discreet that like hit me over the head. And I was like, I can, it's literally turning my stomach right now at points. Unless you're trying to indicate someone that is bad, they want you to think about this person in a negative way and they have bad breath. Like usually that's one of the only yeah. smell senses you're going to get in a book. And, and it's just like, no, we can do better than that. Exactly. Smell is so important. Okay, so last question. What is up next for you? I know Spy with the Red Balloon is coming out soon. And also, where can listeners find you online? Yeah, so the Spy with the Red Balloon is out October 2nd. That's super exciting. Uh, Second books are quite a journey. And then I am also in the middle of copy edits. I am co-editing and contributing to an anthology of Jewish YA short stories by Jewish authors. It's called It's a Whole Spiel, and it comes out next September. Uh, We just got cover comps for it, and I love it so much. I'm really, really proud of this project. That's coming out next fall. Where people can find me online, I am unfortunately always on Twitter at Bibliogato, which is B-I-B-L-I-O-G-A-T-O. I'm also on Instagram under the same name. And my website is katherinelockbooks.com. And when I remember to update it, it is up to date. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>